Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Ananda Brady and Steve Heilig as they discuss Ananda's book, Ten Years on the Hippie Trail and Beyond. The meeting will come to order. And thank you all for coming. More people trickling in. Um, this is one of a uh, long and continuing series, The New School. I think many, if not most, looking around know about this, but we do a lot of uh, talks and record them, and there are podcasts of some of them that have been actually listened to and are being listened to by quite a few people. Some of the recent ones that I've done that, have, uh, that I've enjoyed very much are Ramblin' Jack Elliott, and we did Malcolm Margolin, the great publisher, a while ago. And there are quite a few on there on the New School site uh, so uh, I encourage anybody who's interested, especially if we ever get rain again on a rainy day, it's a nice thing to do, to listen to. And uh, I should also say, of course, that these are free, as you know, but we do appreciate any donations to defer the costs of just running this uh, program. So today we're going to start with a song. And the question is, is anybody here born in August? <laughs> ah, a few. So this is a song to you. now. This being such a heavily Bellinas crowd, I think many of you know the words to this song, which was authored by our guest today. But if you don't, at Commonweal, when we have a staff uh, lunch every month, we sing it. So we have the lyrics here. If anybody doesn't know the lyrics to the real happy birthday song, why don't you... We call it the best or the better happy birthday. Well, I know, but nobody wants one. Everybody... Yeah, pass them, pass them around. Yeah, yeah. So pass these around. Here's, here's, here's one more. That's right. It is actually part of, yeah, Midnight on Water, the, the group that plays the last Wednesday. So we usually do this here with a fairly fast tempo. And Smith's done an intro for this, you know. May I say my introduction? Oh, yes, please. Oh, yes, please. So you can kick that off then, the introduction okay. by Don Smith. <laughs> On birthday for you, this dull dirge just won't do. But we don't have to sing it. In Bellinas, it's true. We have Ananda's happy birthday. Happy, happy birthday. We're in love with you. about 20-something years ago, yeah. the real question, I think Don kind of answered it, but what was wrong with the old one? Well, <laughs> nothing. In fact, I like the old one better. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the old days before the Bolinas birthday song, we used to sing the old one, but we would do it in reggae style. Like so it would be, happy birthday. To you, happy birthday! And then we also used to jam a lot, you know, much more than we do these days. And so it was Dale Polisar's birthday, and um, I was playing my trumpet, and we were jamming out to, you know, 
that's the old birthday song, and I'm so I'm playing this line on my trumpet. Okay, so out of that jumble somehow comes a tune that sticks in my mind, and later on, I sat down at the piano and I put some lyrics to it. Now, the astonishing thing to me, <clears throat> I can't even remember how it started, who I sang it to first, but uh, it grew. It grew and grew and grew all on its own. I swear I would have for totally forgotten about this thing, but it took its own life. And thus, traditions are born, right? So, yes. So, excuse me, I have one more thing to say about this. What I want to do with this song, I want to see it on a TV sitcom. And I want to see, yeah, I have this complete vision. When I was back in Dallas, my, my, my sister's favorite TV show is uh, Parenthood. And in that show, a couple of the brothers had a recording studio. And in that recording studio, in comes CeeLo Green. I don't know if anybody knows CeeLo Green, but he's a big happening you know, guy these days. I want him to sing the happy birthday song in some, happy, in some party setting on the sitcom. And so if anybody knows CeeLo Green or a, a way to, to get to him, tell him I want to talk to him. I'll send him a recording. Because it can be done, like really bluesy, you know. Like, happy birthday, happy, happy birthday, we're in love with you. May happiness be near throughout the coming year and all the best of you. So keep on smiling every day and watch your troubles fade away and may you never, ever, ever be blue. So happy birthday, baby. Happy, happy birthday to you. Yeah. Like, happy birthday, baby. Happy, happy birthday to you. No, I didn't write it for Dale Polisar. But that's just where it got its birth, spurred it on. Uh, that was the seed of it. Okay. So yeah, with the on. song intro, the impetus for this talk, of course, is this amazing book that has been published this year, and uh, Odyssey, 10 Years on the Hippie Trail. And it's a story of 10 years traveling around the world, mostly in the 1960s, late 60s and all through the 70s. And... You know, there's been a lot, a lot of writing and a lot of books about the 60s and so forth. And then there were a lot of people on the road, as it were, during that time. Um, but this is the most detailed, uh, you know, kind of retelling of that. His, his memory, and that his memory is amazing. Because, you know, I don't remember what I had for breakfast, but he's remembering all these <laughs> specific things in here. So what we were going to do, he's been doing some readings and some talks about this. And you might have seen we did a big story in the uh, Pacific Sun a couple months back, too. Um, so we're going to spend some time here first delving into kind of the the backstory and the reasons for this book and and or you know why what the story is and then the second part is going to be a kind of a version of what we call philosophers club which is usually meeting right around this time downtown a number of the club members not that there's any membership or here where we kind of bring up all the great issues of the time and solve all the problems of the world so you know you can all participate in that but what we're going to start with, of course, is his own story, and we're going to start with a very auspicious day <clears throat> in two ways that was VJ Day at the end of World War II and also happened to be the day that Ananda was born. So can you tell us about that? Well, I say that modern history, um, American history, begins with that date. And that, incidentally, the, I was born, and uh, incidentally also, um, the World War II ended 
And um, so... <laughs> Not implying cause and effect. Yeah. No, but as a combination of those two events, there was an enormous celebration all across the land. <laughs> and this was in? And this was in? Kansas? No, this was in uh, Naval Hospital. I was born oh, in a Naval Hospital in um, Camp Pendleton. Yeah, right. And, um, all right, so everybody, it was, it was crazy. Everybody was grabbing and kissing everybody, and I'm sure those kisses went on long into the night. And my mother's own testimony to that very day was um, her story of being completely abandoned in the hospital <laughs> because the, the, the entire staff was attending to each other. And there she was lying there screaming in agony, and I'm on my way. And um, <clears throat> so anyway, finally a doctor stumbles in, and, and uh, she says... Um, his shirt tail was out, and his hair was messed up, and he reeked of alcohol and perfume. <laughs> so I fight and claw my way out, and there he is, and he catches me, and he, and he um, you know, washes me down and wraps me up and hands me off to mom and <clears throat> turns around to go, and she says, wait a minute. At least tell me what I have here. Is this a boy or a girl? <laughs> and he turns around and he says, it's a morphodite. <laughs> True story. That's a Midwestern corruption of the word hermaphrodite. Right? So this is my first, uh, <laughs> my first personality imprint. <laughs> I didn't take him seriously. No, yeah. <laughs> In fact, I remember it. I just said, mm, to that, you know. Anti-authoritarian. So, but you, then you ended up back in the Midwest in Kansas pretty quickly. Yes. Then, right? Well, you know, my parents had been going, it was a very stressful time for them because my father had orders to ship out to the South Pacific on or about September 1st. So that's just in a couple of weeks. My birthday's tomorrow, so that's like two weeks they have um, to um, figure their whole life out. And my mother, of course, was, you know, very, it was very stressful for her anxiety-ridden um, time because she didn't know how she was going to cope with being a military mom and Brandy, you know. But when the war was ended, abruptly, he was also abruptly discharged. I don't think that could ever happen today, but he was um, out, free, and wow, whole life just opened up for them, and they, you know, hung around for a month or so and laid out on the beaches, but then they thought, you know, we can, ha we can do better in life if we go back to the Midwest, and we have <clears throat> my mother's, grand you know, my grandparents' mm -hmm. home to use as a base and get our feet on the ground, so they did. And uh, after about five years old, 1950, my dad was able to buy a house over in Topeka, and that's where I went to start going to school. And, and um, kind of an all-American boyhood there. It was. It was very, you know, it was the Donna Reed existence. We had it all. We had a little house and a little t mm -hmm. TV and a car. And my dad was a car salesman, so he always had a nice car. And. Um, 
Um, there was about an 11-year period for white middle-class America that everything was just peachy. There was not a worry in the world. Everybody was, a, all the, the, the entire country was geared toward building this tremendous middle class. And, um, and everybody that was in, into that, uh, you know, mindset was making it. My dad had a GI Bill and he was able to get loans and able to get a house and everything. So <clears throat> everything was just fine, not a worry, until 1956. Now what happened in 1956 that completely disrupted everything? Sputnik. No. Mm. Um, Bay of Pigs, huh? No, 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 not yet. No, none of, no, none of that. The shockwave, the bombshell was Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> It was serious. I've got something to read here from, um, it is just a news sort of clip. Um, legions of commentators, guardians of public morals and pop culture critics predicted the end of civilization <laughs> as they knew it if Elvis' ungodly onstage gyrations were allowed to continue unchecked. And they were right. They were right. They were. Absolutely right. Yeah. Our parents had cause to fear. Personally, it hit me in the gut, like all my friends. Elvis was it, man. And, and it, he was like our first LSD. Yeah. Because it changed our chemical structure of our brains. And the rest of you, too. Your, your pelvis. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> All included. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so Elvis then went into the military, and you know, you went on that track as well. Uh, tell us about. Well, no, no, that's not cause and effect. I, no, I, no, I don't mean cause and effect. <laughs> <laughs> you were a big fan, right? I was a big fan until until he went to the military. They co-opted him. You see, right. they they took him and, and right. they homogenized him. They, that's the way they dealt with it, and uh, they lost me. Well, I mean, he, I mean, Elvis lost me right at that time, but, but there was plenty of other rock and roll. So, no, but no, you wound no up worries. in the Marine Reserves. Yes, I did, and and, and California. Yes, yes. And so there, you you end up coming out here. I think this is back jumping to the way land. ahead, but no, we, no, we, <laughs> we got a lot of ground to cover here. Yeah. So, <laughs> the whole world, actually. So, yeah. So you came back to the land of your birth, actually. Yeah. So right. Well, I joined the Marines. Um, in, uh, it will be 50 years ago in <clears throat> about two weeks or about next week. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I did that because uh, my gang of friends, all the guy friends that I had, um, that's the way we gave ourselves a sort of rite of passage mm -hmm. to adulthood. Mm -hmm. We could join the Marine Corps Reserves, do six months of the most strenuous training in all of our regular services, and come back a man. And that's what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's true. And uh, I never really bought into the whole Marine Corps thing. And there wasn't any Vietnam. There wasn't, that happened when I was in. I had just came off of a, out of a three-day war, mock war, in a snowy foxhole in North Carolina. And the headlines in the newspaper were Marines killed in Vietnam. And so, wow, you know, suddenly it got serious. But um, 
a couple of years back in Kansas, you know, I was very lucky that my unit wasn't called during that time because I would have gone. I didn't have any counter ideas. Mm -hmm. But after moving to California and I was in the Santa Monica unit out there, then uh, I started getting, you know, hip to the whole thing that was going on with the war and what load of crap it was and and so I just decided I'm not going to cause myself trouble but if I get called I'm out of here I'm going to Mexico not Canada Mexico Mexico <laughs> and what were, you know there you you're in Southern California at that time what were you seeing and being exposed to in California that was also an influence on you well the first okay I was very naive when I moved out <laughs> Uh, it was in 1966. I was uh, nearing 21 years old. And, um, you know, I had to start, start all over again with my social life. I, I had attained a certain stature in Topeka, uh, but then that was all gone. And everybody is truly much more sophisticated out here on the West Coast in Santa Monica. And uh, my, um, my buddy Brad and I, we... We got an apartment immediately. On the first day, I don't think we spent one night out. We got to California, we got an apartment the first night. The population was half what it is now. It was so much easier to get, to get happening, you know, to get something going. We had an apartment the first day, and both of us had jobs within the first week. And so we got a little TV, and we had a bar, and we, we liked to make gin and tonics and all that, and then we we'd watched the Joe Pine show. And the Joe Pine show was, he was like the godfather of all the, uh, the, the talk show, you know, the confrontational talk shows that we have now. And he used to love to get the hippies on. And he'd get the panel, and this is 1966, there were, but it hadn't hit the mainstream of, uh, you know, national consciousness yet. And he would prod them and goad them until he would get them screaming in, in rage. And that's what he was going for, you know. And uh, then the audience would cheer. And we were cheering on Joe Pine because we just thought these were the most ridiculous people we'd ever seen. And we had no idea about it. We would go up to Sunset Strip and, 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 and go, are you a boy or are you a girl? You know, we'd do that stuff, my buddy and I. So what changed that? Well... <laughs> I'm glad you asked. <laughs> That's what they call a softball question, because I know what you mean. <laughs> it was a great, with me, it's very gradual. I have to know before I jump. You know, I have to, I have to look before I, so, um, but I was reading the free press. It was in the air. It was in the air, and we were just hearing more and more and more about all this, and meeting people who were, you know, tripping on acid and people who were smoking pot and we hadn't done any of that stuff. So finally, you know, it's like, okay. And we got a joint. And we were already listening to, of course, the Beatles. You know, this was, and as an aside, 10 years from Elvis to the Revolver album, if that makes any sense to anybody. That's a huge change already in, in the country. And um, so, but then... One of one of our friends came to the door with a with a joint, and us guys, you know, we smoked this joint. It was like cold sweat on our foreheads. And what are we doing? This is the thing that moms were the very most terrified of. It's illegal too. Oh yeah, 
And our landlord was down the way, suspecting shit, you know, and he was a mean dude. So it was, yeah, it was perilous. But there we were, you know, stretched out on the floor like zombies, like uh, Night of the Living Dead being fed the information from the overlords <laughs> by listening to Jimi Hendrix and, <laughs> and the Beatles and all this, you know. And... Like, <laughs> and um, so that and reading and hearing and, and, and but one day it occurred to me, man, this is something, this is something much more than silly. This is like uh, a religious you know, movement on the scale of Cecil B. DeMille. And there were other substances as well. Not yet for me. Yeah. No, but yes, that's, uh, that was prevalent and it was growing all the time, and I kept meeting people that were, you haven't taken acid, you haven't dropped acid, man, what's, you know, I was afraid, you know, I mean, it's like, it's gonna kill your chromosomes, right? And that was one of them, yeah. Yeah. And you ended up moving all then into uh, Topanga Canyon, mm. too, which was kind of a uh, Bolinas-like scene. <laughs> it was like, or more like, at that point, Haight-Ashbury, but rural. <laughs> yeah. It was like uh, moving to Bolinas from Fresno. <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. I, I had a, a vision of um, Topanga Canyon from something I heard on the radio. Bob Dylan was reported walking up the road in Topanga Canyon. And that sparked my imagination. Well, I got to see this place. And so we drove up to Topanga and I said, wow, I'd love to live up here. And then my boss in the aircraft factory, lived up there, and I asked him uh, if he knew of any place, and he said, ah, you take my place, we're moving out, <laughs> you know, so that's what happened. So you had a scene there. So, was, man, yeah, 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 yeah. And there was more, I mean, this was more of what you would, you, you could identify as a hippie scene going on, really. That was totally a hippie scene, this was a yeah. little gulch, it was, the, it was the delta of the Topanga Creek, yeah. and so here's Pacific Coast Highway, Here's the, the jungle down here, and um, the mountains all around us, hills, you know. And we were in this little gulch, in this beautiful little grotto that was, uh, had subtropical flora all around us, night-blooming jasmine and all and this. There was a music scene happening. There was a Topanga Corral where bands are playing, and Neil Young yeah. lived up there at one That's point. That's right, yeah. People like that. Mm -hmm. That's and true. There, yeah. and so, but you're still in the reserves, right? didn't have to say that. <laughs> no, no, he did. Of course he did. This was a big deal because, okay, all the people in Topanga Canyon Lane, all the guys had hair down to his shoulders. Me, I had a little Kennedy tuft, you know, shorn up the sides once a month, haircut. I come in, I have the job, I have the house, I have the car. I just bought a new Austin Healy, or not a new Austin Healy, you know, an Austin Healey. So I drive in, move into the neighborhood, and everybody thought I was a narc. <laughs> Absolutely sure. And I moved in with this guy that was even more straight-looking than I was that I got put together with by circumstances that I didn't really ask for, but there he was. Mm -hmm. So we were the narcs of the neighborhood. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> It took a while to convince them, 
you know, mm-hmm. for them to see that I wasn't like, like that at all. So it was this great scene for you in a sense and a great awakening, but there was, I mean, you had at least one encounter with one of the darkest figures of that time as well, yes. who was spent some time in Topanga Canyon. Do you want to, you wanted to actually yeah, um, say something about that? Well, the first thing I want to say is that uh, his name was not Charlie Manson, his name was Bus Charlie. He drove a big black 30, 40-foot school bus, had it all painted black, and um, w- one of his places that he'd come, you know, he'd come down to uh, down to the lane every now and then. And a lot of a lot of people did. But see, it was not like there was any suspicion about this guy or anything because everybody was weird in those days. It was everybody was doing their own trip, and so he was just that guy was his trip, and he usually had always had women with him. Uh, I actually got to know uh, Squeaky and Linda Kasabian lived in my front room for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, Manson would, Charlie would come up and he'd play my guitar and he'd sit around in my living room and he brought Dennis Wilson over one night and Dennis Wilson was hitting on my girlfriend and, you know, so, I mean, and then I wrote in the book, you know, about going, uh, it's supposed to be a surprise ending, but you, this is what you get when you come to these little meetings, you get the inside story. This is Charlie Manson's bus that we're in and, um. So I take you inside there a little bit, and just the atmosphere. This spooky guy, but nobody ever thought anything like that. Well, I mean, the way of life. There were a lot of people living in buses and traveling around, and yes, small gangs of exactly, people. So it wasn't exactly. unusual in that sense, yeah, right, right. you know. All right. And another thing that people don't know about, realize about Manson, um, unless you really do some study, is that uh, they don't know how many people those people killed. I mean, the ones that are famous, everybody knows, but they reckon maybe 35, maybe 40, maybe more. And Gary Hinman was one of them. He used to come down and hang him out at my house. So we we all had acquaintances, you know, on both sides of the Manson family, victims and the family themselves. And it's just some kind of blessing that kept us... None of, the, none of the women that lived at my house, I had four women living in my house permanently. They were wild women. They were all nude dancers at the Sunset Strip. And, but they had, they had a good code of ethics. We all had a good code of ethics going on, you know. Very, um, I, I guess... Ethical nude dancing is a, <laughs> yeah, it's a big... That's right, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> But so, you know, not cause and effect again, but sometime around then. So you had this great scene, but then you started to get the bug that it was time to hit the road. Well, let's, let's go to the LSD first, you know, because... because <laughs> I tried to get you there before, but you didn't bite. Yeah, so yeah we'll, we'll, we'll go back. We've we got to go back there, because by that time... Um, it was a calling, you know. I mean, I, I, was, I was hearing... Can I read one page? Yeah. I read I, I a read, I read, I read poetic little thing about it here that I can't... What, what year are we at about? Well, we're right there uh, in Topanga. Yeah. So for the first, this, this for the first six months, it was about six months in. I think it was before the women came and all that. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it was just like it was time. I had to do it. Mm-hmm. We were visited. This is the way I see it. This was a premonition. This was a, a calling of some mystical sense, in some mystical sense. And I saw it that way then, and I still do now. We were visited, first by an unexplainable urge, a longing, 
a swelling summons from sirens sweetly singing into our innermost ear. Ingest the soma. Ingest the soma. They beckoned. We have messages from afar. Sail your ships through our dark and dangerous waters. We will guide you safely past the treacherous rocks onto a calm and sunny shore. There, you will hear our song with a bursting heart, with a joyfully crying soul, and be filled with visions of wonder and terror from all the worlds of all time and all space. You will then yourselves become the message bearers, the singers of the songs, so sorely missed on your bedraggled outpost of paradise, meaning planet Earth. And there, with full faith, we followed, not knowing yet, but not altogether blind either. With an inner eye, we could somehow see this is the way to go. Here's the path to take. And so, onto that vast ocean of a single drop, we sailed. So that's, that's the, you know, we all saw it like that. We all saw it as a cosmic, cosmic transmission that was being given to us. It was a very prevalent idea. And if you read the oracle, I've got, by the way, I've got the entire set of Oracle. If anybody wants to download it, you can talk to me. This is the I San Francisco can, Oracle. San Francisco Oracle. And you will see that it was truly an enormous <clears throat> religious movement. It was a very religious movement. And I think that's another thing that most people in the country don't realize, that it was, it was, a, it was a spiritual awakening on a vast scale. We're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that. You're listening to a conversation with Ananda Brady and Steve Heilig. So, some acid. Some acid. Changed Some you. pot. Uh, yeah, changed you. Some girls. In some ways, all that. And you got the bug that it was time to hit the road, to travel. This was a gradual also, you know, um, a man walked into all of our lives, Gypsy Jerry, who had been traveling for uh, about six years. And, and he is truly one of the most charismatic people I've ever met in my life, still to this day. And he filled me with the desire to make that trip somehow. And um, it, was his, it was his influence and his alone that made me do what I did. Apart from that, I had my own reasons. You know, I didn't follow his way of traveling. He was a master criminal, actually. He made lots of money um, smuggling, and he had, did it in very ingenious ways. And I made a vow not to do anything illegal in my travels. Mm -hmm. So it was very much my own trip, but he was the inspiration. Did you have a destination in mind when you left? India. India. Yeah. But you ended up going south first. Yeah. And how did that, where were you? Had, well, you went into Mexico. I just wanted to finally, I was trying to get on, a, uh, work my way aboard some kind of ship, vessel, um, ocean-going vessel to, you know, just the other continent to get over to Europe, but that didn't work out. I tried for maybe a year. So I just, okay, get, a, get out of the country, go down to uh, Mexico, and just take it from there. Mm -hmm. That's where the story begins. And so how did you get down there first? <clears throat> well, 
hitchhiked. I hitchhiked out of the country, then I jumped on a train and got way deep down into Mexico and so forth. How much money did you have when you left? About 200 bucks. Mm -hmm. And you had no, I mean, you figured that was going to last you for a long time, it was not a problem. Well, I knew it wasn't going to last me long, but uh, my, also my, my pledge was just to, was to do it, was to keep going, mm -hmm. not to come back when the money ran out. So, you know, one of the interesting things we talked about in the interview in the print in the Pacific Sun was people don't realize now, younger people, how different it was. This was before cell phones, before the internet. And so when you took off, you took off and you were out of touch. You know, I, I was later than you, but I went away for almost three years. And, you know, you would hope to find a phone somewhere or a, you would tell, I'm going to be at a I'm going to be at American Express in some place in <laughs> six months from now. Please send me a letter. So what were your parents thinking at this point. You told them you're just going to take off with 200 yeah, bucks, you know. Yeah, yeah. Were they worried about well, it? Well, <laughs> of course, I'm sure they were, you know. I mean, they were always worried. After after I came back a hippie, then it was it was a lot it was a big deal. Well, so that, coming back you mean from the south the Back from country. California. Oh, the, oh, yeah, from yeah. everything after right. that, you know, was a worrisome worrisome thing to them. Mm -hmm. And I have to give them so much credit for being for allow, you know, to giving me their blessing. Mm. My mother always said, you know, I just give you to God. Well, you actually, you, you wrote about this, about your father, and I, I thought it was very moving in, in here in uh -huh. a way. This, when you came back from the first, how long were you in Mexico and, South, and Central America? Two years. Two years. So you came back from the first couple of years and, yeah. and back to Kansas, and you said just that, I have to give a lot of credit to my father for shaping and solidifying my own views, even though or perhaps because we didn't see eye to eye on almost anything. And you said, he once said, all this way out stuff you're talking about makes you sound like a kook. People are your greatest allies, but don't set yourself apart as some kind of know-it-all. No matter what you say, you still have to prove yourself in life. And you know what? I never met anyone I couldn't learn somebody from. And somebody you, I and you say, something from. Couldn't learn something from. And you say, these are some valuable gifts. And then you said, I mean, then later on he said, uh, you were saying, if it doesn't work out, I'll come back home. And he, and he said, don't think like that. Of course you're welcome to come back anytime to visit, but not to live. Burn your bridges, go out there and make it work. I mean, this is, that's pretty cool for a Kansas dad from, you know, the, the 50s, you know, to do that. And then that you disappear, because this is the thing. I mean, parents now, you know, I, I have people, their kids go off to travel, and they're, they're writing and tweeting back to them, like, hourly or every day and all that. And it's, it's not like you're really leaving, in a sense, in my mind. You know, it's the being out there and being cut off that is such a big part of the adventure. And you went out there for years, you yeah. know, um, both first for the couple of years of South America, then you came, or Latin, you know, I mean, not South America, but Central America and Mexico, mm -hmm. and then you came back, and then you took off again, again, to try to get to your ultimate destination, to yeah. India, and we're yeah. gone for another seven, eight years, you know? And, and also, you know, it was full, con full um, concentration on where you were. It wasn't, uh, oh, I'm going to do all that stuff you're talking about, you know, continuously... Uh, check back in or look at this or that. It was full intensity of the of place, and um, you know, um, being way out in the high plains of Afghanistan on a horse. That was as far away as I felt that I got, <laughs> and uh, it was truly magnificent experience in being out there and, um, in such uh, with no recourse.
There was no recourse. So if, any, if anything happened out there, if and my God, I mean, I have sweats about it now, thinking sleeping right on the ground, <laughs> wild wolves, anything. I found out not too long ago that um, that uh, Afghans, it was against their religion for women to ride horses. Well, I'd invited this woman along, and she came, and so uh, they would stone to death anybody. Uh, riding with a woman if she was on a horse. I mean, my God. And then we went through the center, central route of Afghanistan, and we were just helped along by everybody. We didn't, we didn't run into any hostility at all, but it could have, could have, could have, could have. Well, there are a few stories in here, not to ruin any of the, the dramatic ones, but I mean, I mean in, in Mexico or Central America, about almost drowning. There's one about being lost in the Sahara kind of thing. I mean, there's, you know, how many times, you know, that's one where you didn't, you know, how many times do you think you had like a near-death experience on oh. these travels? I will never know. Yeah. <laughs> there were a couple in here where you seemed to be aware that you were maybe in trouble. You know? <laughs> yeah, Getting well, but... In a windstorm in the Sahara. My, is, my you know, favorite is toward the end of the book when I got, actually did get malaria, or yeah, yeah, yeah. typhus, or I don't know, yeah. uh, typhoid fever, whatever it is from the water. Um, <clears throat> doctors, American doctors didn't know. French doctor didn't know. Um, they ran a series of tests and all that, a lot of questions, and I don't know. Uh, um, I was healed in five minutes by a man with a glass of water and some feathers. And he lifted it from me. Like that. You know, I'd been sick for six weeks at least, and, and starting to worry, starting to realize people die. People do die from these, you know, unex, unidentified <laughs> tropical diseases. So you were in, so, you went to Mexico, you were traveling around, you went to some of the kind of, there was the beginnings of a hippie trail down there as well in terms of where people Oh yeah, very much so, and, yeah. <clears throat> and you were, yeah. you were uh, supporting yourself somewhat by uh, selling peanut butter. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah, that was the first big breakthrough. <laughs> <laughs> I supported myself first by, by my girlfriend who, um, who came to meet me. She was the emotional rescue in the first chapter, Karen. And um, she came the next, very next day after my traveler's checks got stolen. She appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> and you, but you got around there. You had, I mean, yeah. that's, that's like, you were, it seemed like they were probably, I mean, did, could you see the Mexico and Central America travels as kind of like preparing you in some ways for the big adventure of going to Asia? Yes, I mean, it, yes. It, you were having some hard times there. There were, you know, the, the, the legal kind of problems of uh, visas and that kind of stuff, but mainly the... The thing about you know when you're traveling around like that, who do you trust and who do yeah. you yeah. who do you spend time with and, and hook up with and travel right. you know and all of that. Well, hooking up with Joaquin um, was a was a huge thing you know because we traveled together for a whole year after we left Lake Atitlan in Guatemala. Then we went further south, and um, we also ran out of money you know very 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 quickly. But between the two of us, now if I was alone, if I had been alone. I don't know. At that time, I was very, still very green, and uh, it was. Um, but because of the two of us, and he was much more world worldly wise than I at the time, absolutely. And uh, so he had ways and means, and then I started picking up my own, and we added it together. You know, we 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 what he lacked, I had, and what I lacked, he had, and it was a perfect combination. We traveled for almost a year, and. Um, so I credit him with um, 
was really helping me get on my feet. And then, uh, and then I had this acid vision. I took some acid in jail, right? And um, <clears throat> had a vision. That's what people do. And uh, uh, I saw this scene, uh, situation on a beach somewhere. And we built, had built a little hut in my dream, in my acid vision. Built a, hu a little hut. And we lived in it. And we were just get, we were out of the city. And we were just doing nothing but yoga. And, you know, we were doing yoga every day at least. And... So we actually did that. Within three days, we found that place, and the hut was already built. This is in this is in what country now? This is in uh, Costa Rica. Costa Rica, yeah, yeah. And that was so. From that time, three months of, of yoga on the beach and eating fantastic fruit straight from the tree, and um, rice and beans and eggs diet. It brought me into. Um, control of my own health and really into control of my own destiny, I feel, because it centered me. Joaquin left, but I, by that time I had it together enough to keep, to really guide my own course then for the rest of those years. Then I went back, I just decided, it was a conscious decision to, to go back to uh, America for a while, regroup, get, you know, spend time with the family and mm -hmm. I worked out on a farm and for how long were you back home then? Mm, all summer. For a summer. Mm -hmm. While you were traveling down there, did you were you starting to encounter a lot of other gringos on the road on the trail? It was the hippie from, trail, definitely. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's when I discovered the. I didn't know there's such a thing as a hippie trail when I split, mm -hmm. but there it was, and there's all these great people, you know. And in those days, people would find a spot like Lake Hotetlan um, and stay for months. I was there. Uh, on that lake for nearly a, a whole year. You know, I was traveling. I was going to India, but I didn't care how long it took. Yeah. I was never coming back. In my mind, I was never going to stop being a, a traveler. Mm -hmm. So you got to uh, back, you worked for the summer, saved up some money, right? And, yeah, and I mean, so you were a thousand bucks or so. Still yeah. a thousand bucks, so you're rich and you're going to yeah. head off to uh, Asia now. So yeah. how did you get to Asia? Well, that was another three three years before I got to Asia, I guess. You know. Well, Europe, okay, yeah. You know. yeah I got I straight. Okay, that was when I hitchhiked from LA to uh, the Sahara Desert, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, straight. I didn't stop. Mm -hmm. I just kept going, and with the idea in mind of getting some getting some goats, making a Bedouin type tent, and living out in the Sahara Desert. Right. So how did you good. how did you get over the ocean though? I flew. Was it the, the famous? Just an overnight flight. The famous Icelandic Exactly, area, yeah, 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 yeah. Icelandic yeah. Airways. So yeah. the, the, this was, an air, this was an air, <laughs> the cheapest air flight you could get, which was part of the hippie trail. <laughs> it was definitely part of the hippie overnight trail. Overnight in, in Reykjavik and then keep going. So you got over there and uh, Reykjavik. started yeah, right. heading for the, the desert, right? Yeah, I just kept going. I didn't break stride. I just, you know, I just I was hitchhiked into the airport. <laughs> In uh, Idlewild, it was Idlewild Inn, I think, yeah. <laughs> and uh, flew out and landed in Luxembourg and just kept going. Hitchhiking down. Hitchhiking down, and I, I went, I, I, was, I didn't stop in Paris, I went all the way through Paris, I went all the way through Spain, and then all the way out to, mm -hmm. and kept going, kept going, until I got to the furthest end of the road in Morocco, looking for something, and, and saw it mm. out there. I don't know what I was looking for, and I don't know what I saw, but 
When I got out of that car, we, and I was a couple of buddies traveling with me that was interested in my crazy vision. And the next day, um, we, 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 we spotted a tent on the horizon and we went over there and there I met a family who invited me in to uh, live with him. Mm-hmm. Were they nomadic themselves? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot about right. in the book about that. Um, you know, so, it, yeah, so yeah. there was a bit of a scene, there was a, scene, a, tra- a Westerners scene in, uh, you know, in Tangier, say, and so forth in these places, but getting out there into those zone, I mean, you're not a particularly big guy. I mean, did you feel threatened ever? Did you have encounters? I think that protected me, actually. If I was a big macho guy, I think, you know, those are the guys that get into fights. They get challenged. They get, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe. You never, you didn't feel it? I never did. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have any situation that I was uh, in dire fear of. <clears throat> I don't know why. There's certainly plenty of cause for it. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of... Um, encounters with things but I was I didn't I didn't have fear I was most afraid of running out of money and not knowing what I was going to do about it right <laughs> so you're there with the <clears throat> nomads on the edge of the yep. desert and how did how long did you stay with them it was um, the entire winter mm-hmm. fairly cold winter at night especially and um, but they gave me a tent all to myself and they, they were, the only thing that they had uh, as possessions were a transistor radio and an old beat-up bicycle. And other than that, they could have been in the 15th century B.C., you know. I mean, it could have been any time. And um, so I lived out there with them. It was beautiful. So one of the things about that kind of travel and staying is that people often, you, know, you, don't, you don't realize is there's a lot of downtime, right? There's a lot of just... Yeah. being and yeah. hanging out and you about that episode you say here I may not have done much in these months as a sitting nomad but never did I feel anything like boredom yeah so what were you feeling what what was so fascinating about it for you <clears throat> well I was fascinated by the whole situation that, 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 that I found myself in for one thing <laughs> it was so so wonderful that this opened up to me it was much better than my own idea for myself and I had this whole family and this whole, you know, life that I was living. And the desert is an immense consciousness. I love deserts. And so just being out there and um, the interaction that I had with this family was enough to sustain me. And personally, I did yoga every morning and I found a spot over a couple of sand dunes where I was all by myself and... Uh, um, I know, but eventually I met some English hippies, and I took up with them, and that ruined everything. <laughs> In terms of it was time to go. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> and there were some legal authorities telling you it was time to go. Yes, 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 so, yes. I was evicted from the Sahara Desert. Yes. Because, because and so that was pushing you further east, and you were then heading... Finally. Well, that, that took me back up a very circuitous route, back up into Europe. And there I was in Europe for a whole year, kind of shanghai a little bit, you know, <clears throat> in Germany. And I broke free of that finally and then over to Greece and then over overland. 
mm-hmm. to Afghanistan. So the overland, that's, that's the most famous part of the hippie trail probably, the overland route through Afghanistan, mm-hmm. I mean the Middle East even and so forth and all these mm-hmm. places now that are you know, largely forbidden to Westerners even or that kind of travel. Uh-huh. So did you, you, by then, I mean you were seeing then a lot of other Westerners and you were all heading towards the yes. Mystic East as it were. Yes, yes. Um, it was a steady stream of, of hippies on the trail mm-hmm. from start to finish in my, in my time. Traveling and, by truck and van and yeah. train and when it was there. Right, I, I made it across uh, the eastern Turkey and all that <coughs> huge expanse of land. It was, you know, so this is all Silk Road. This is all, uh, the, that was the major... The Silk Road has many, many branches down from the Himalayas and up from here and there and all around. And, and uh, then it funnels across eastern Turkey. And um, I did that in a Volkswagen bus with a guy, an English guy, that was, that was his business. He bought them in London and drove them to Tehran and sold them and did it again. I think it's his like fifth... Mm-hmm. If uh, time out, so I had uh, that was fun with several guys. We all did that, you know. That's the way I got. <clears throat> that's the way I got to Tehran, and then uh, took a bus over to Afghanistan from there. And you seem to have a particularly uh, memorable or rewarding time in you know in Kabul and so forth. You actually, yeah, yeah. Well, the first thing that happened um, the very first uh, week in in Afghanistan was that I uh, met uh, uh, some guys, German guys met me. They approached me and asked me if I knew anything about horses. If you know something about horses, uh, something of horses, we would like to uh, invite you to come with us. And uh, we know nothing of horses, but we want to buy one. If you can help us to buy horses, and we will also help you uh, to come with us. Okay. Did, did you know anything about horses? Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Smooth. Yeah. I'd ridden a horse about two weeks in my whole life before that, you know. And there was one, there was one time down in the lake, down in Guatemala, mm-hmm. that we did have a couple of horses, so that was my entire... Um, sure, I do. Yes, I do. Yeah, I've told them, yes. And so, wow, wonderful. I mean, that was the most incredible thing out all the way across that huge, you know, the high plains in Afghanistan by horseback. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then coming into Kabul, I had, um, I think I had $5 left, U.S. And uh, so it was enough to get a room, and I got a room, and then I started, uh, they needed uh, a menu. They're going to start a kitchen. And I so, they said, what kind of food does Americans like? Do Amer-? And I wrote up a menu, and, and then I said, well, who's going to do your cooking? And they said, I don't know. I said, I'm your cook. <laughs> so I got a, landed a Did you know how to cook? A position. <laughs> oh, sure. Just like you knew how to write. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you did. You but did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so how long were you there? In well, I was there for about uh, three or four weeks, and then 
it was time to move on. But India was still calling. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, always. So how did you move on from there? Took a bus. Uh-huh. Took a bus then from straight into across the Khyber Pass and uh, right off, up to the border of India. And how far, how far is that? And that was with David Edwards, who wrote my introduction. Uh-huh. We both um, traveled over overland together, seeing India, each of us, for the first time. And so how long did that, how long is that bus ride? Oh, the bus ride? A couple of days. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then and a you, train ride and, you know. Yeah, and then you get into, where was your first destination in India? Benares. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah, Varanasi. Varanasi. Yeah. Benares. Varanasi is, uh, uh, okay, it goes, Benares is the, the, the latest name. Of, that was the English that gave it the name Benares mm-hmm. from Varanasi, and the ancient name is Kashi. Mm-hmm. So this is the holiest city on the banks of the Ganges, yes. where you know the center yes. of spiritual India, really. So you got there, and then did you know anybody there? No. <laughs> and so you no, had no, your no. yeah. Did you have four dollars then, or what were you? Oh, actually, I had a little money then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From the restaurant. So you were then, what were you planning to do? You got to Varanasi and found a place, and uh, you know, or a place to stay at least. And what was your plan then? Well, that's when all the plans, there's no necessity of another plan. Because I, now I'm in, I'm in, in my destination. Mm-hmm. And so, but the, but the immediate plan that I crafted for myself was, I could see people sleeping all over the, Anywhere, everywhere in India, people sleep. Doesn't matter where. So that's me. I'm not going to. I'm not going to live in a hotel in India. So I went down to the riverside, and before the day was over, I met this family of sadhus on the bank of the river, and they invited me to stay there. So I lived with them for several months, right outside on the river. And it was that woman. That sadhus are the, the dreadlocked wandering pilgrims. They, they're renunciates of worldly uh, aspirations. And, but this was an unusual family. And it, uh, sadhus don't generally have families. They are on their own. But this man and his woman met, and they had three children. And so there's some pictures of them here in the book. And that's the woman here um, that gave me my name, Ananda. And why, so you were Craig up until then, why, why Ananda? Well, Ananda means, um, you know, its ultimate meaning is, is bliss, un, uncorruptible bliss. And, uh, or it can mean, you know, just a happy guy. <laughs> but it's also a name of a very prominent figure in, you know... It's very, I mean, it's like Smith here, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, one of the Buddhist, Buddhas. Oh, that name. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> that guy. <clears throat> I stepped off a curb, got a big nail in my foot. An inch long, went right into my heel. And the same day, I got pickpocketed. In Varanasi still? In Varanasi. Yeah. And by that time, I didn't have any money. That was it. <clears throat> and um, so that evening, that night, um, 
Baba G, Mata G, and I, we, he had a, a little chunk of black Pakistani hash, and he said, tonight we smoking, Baba. And uh, we went out to the um, uh, little spot by the river, and we lit up, and Mataji gave me this name. She said, it's very good. You, you, the nail, your foot, your money gone. You, you name Ananda. You're Ananda. So that's um, Ananda Baba. And so there was also an encounter with the guru, true guru there in India. I mean, were you looking for that, or did it just happen into that kind of... Uh, I, I was curious about Sai Baba. I'd heard a lot of stories about him. He's a big superstar guru in, in <laughs> India. And um, truly a miraculous person, I must say. I never became his disciple. Uh, in fact, I've never become a disciple in that sense in my life. But I have many gurus. And um, I just put them all together. You know, I take what there is to take. They say the guru lives inside. We actually know. If we just allow ourselves to know and not be in a state of not knowing, we are in a state of knowing and just go by the intuition. Mm -hmm. And um, it's like that. Were you, I mean, did you, you knew of some of these figures. I mean, you'd read, you mentioned in oh, Ramdas's book, for example, Be Here Now, which a lot of people were carrying around at that point, and, and it led them on to India, too. I mean, were you actually, did you seek out teachers there and to spend time with and learn from, or just I can't say on? I did, actually. I, um, they just turn up. India is the, India was my teacher. The entire situation of India and the paradigm that, that exists there, of, uh, it's, it's vast, it's cosmic, it's, you know, it's everything. It's all the way down to the most corrupt and the most terrible. But you can focus where you want to. And I, was, I always had my eye open for any wisdom I could see, any, anything that came to me. And I took a, I took a, a, a Vipassana course in Bodh Gaya for 10 days. That was with a true guru. And uh, it was an intensive 10-day sitting course where you don't speak and you sit for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, guided through with no concept whatsoever given to you. You just observe what, you just observe the reality that's in your own body. <laughs> And you were doing this in the place where Buddha himself attained. Right, that, right? Bodh Gaya, that's the, that's the town where Buddha um, was enlightened, mm -hmm. under the Bodhi tree there. You're listening to a conversation with Ananda Brady and Steve Heilig. Well, one of the things about India, I mean, there's a famous saying about India, is when you go there, you can't wait to get the hell out. And once you're out, you can't wait to get back. <laughs> so there's just something about it. But one of the things also that's there is the vast poverty. The people living in the street, et cetera. Now, you weren't rich yourself, but you're a Westerner. You had, you know, some resources back home, for example. But, I mean, how, you know, people react to this very differently. So you're traveling through some of these countries, particularly India, where the poverty can be overwhelming to a lot of people. How did that feel to you? Did you, you know ignore it? Did it impact you? Did it teach you something? It was just like living in Bolinas. 
you take everything as it is, you know. I, I didn't, I, I mean, there's poverty right here in this town. There's, there's wealth right here in this town. It makes no difference to me. People are people, and I saw, I saw, because I was living on the ground level myself, the Sadhu family that I lived with, some days I had some money, some days they had some money. We put it together like that. There was another, they, they were also very um, scrupulous. They kept their area clean. They were high-minded. They had company. They were very generous. They lived a beautiful life out there on the side of that river. Right over there, not that far away, um, there was another family that lived in darkness. They, they, they had all the, everything at their command that my family did, but they lived there in squalor. They didn't take care of their place themselves and so forth and so forth. So I saw it's individual consciousness that guides our mm-hmm. guides us. Now Varanasi is very famous for the ghats, the burning, uh, mm. uh, where you know Indians. Uh, the ideal is to be able to die there, and to have your body burned and given to the river. So, you must have been encountering direct experience of mortality then too. And you know most of us don't see much of that. So you know mm-hmm. what was that like for you to see? All you know, I mean, the bodies are constantly being fed to the river there. Constantly. You know, I don't know where they get all the wood. Well, that's a problem. They get it. (laughs) There is stacks for as long as there is history. To this day, there is mountains of lumber, trees, full trees, that they hack apart and, and burn. I don't know how they do it. They do it. It's shocking to see a body burning. I mean, it goes, you know, it's a fairly graphic uh, description mm-hmm. of it here. And, um, you know, you see it all. If you, if you just care to sit there and watch, it's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and did it, was it part, did it form you in some way? Or, I mean, after the shock? Well, I mean, yeah. Uh, I wrote a poem. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just a part of everything that you take in. Mm-hmm. You just take it in, you internalize it, you, you see it for what it is. It's, it's actually, I think it's a much more honest approach to death than what we have here because the people, people aren't, they understand the cycle of birth and, lo- and, birth and death. They don't try and hide it. And they don't try. They don't fear it the same way we do. And mm-hmm. so you, from India, you went further on the hippie trail to the kind of the ultimate end, which is Nepal and Kathmandu. Mm-hmm. And so, what drew you up there? And you well, went overland, right? Yeah. yeah, I went back and forth between India and Afghanistan several times, oh, yeah. and um, I I got a, a real job. A, a, managing a hotel for six months for third, I was there three times and uh, so I had a place to return to in that hotel and uh, I started getting the idea this is what took me to Nepal I started getting the idea toward the end of my final visit in Afghanistan that I wanted to learn to make jewelry I had been working on uh, some pieces and uh, I started in fact in Germany um, but I wanted to really learn 
And it made a living for me, by the way, along the, on the road from time to time. Um, better, <clears throat> better than peanut butter. No, not better, but <laughs> as good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to learn real goldsmithing, and so there was there's two places uh, that I felt at the time, and I still think that's true. That uh, they make the best handmade jewelry is in uh, Nepal and in Bali, and I figured well. Nepal is here. Bali is way over there, so I'll go to Nepal. And that's how. And I wanted to find a master to study with, and I did. In Kathmandu. In Kathmandu. And you ended up on what was uh, called Freak Street. I, I lived on Freak Street. Yeah. <laughs> I lived on, I, I, there was two things I was looking for. So what, I'm, what am I searching for? Okay, I'm, at this time I was searching for a goldsmith master and a rooftop Apartment. I said, I want to live on a roof in Kathmandu. I mm-hmm. thought this when I was coming down. We were driving down the bus, and I could see the whole Kathmandu Valley, and I said, wow, what an incredible place. I want to live on a roof. So, But there's no rooftop apartments. Um, I found a storage shed on a roof and made it an apartment and <laughs> turned it into one. I had to convince the landlord to do that. And so, uh, what was the question? Well, I don't know. <laughs> How you ended up there? So you're there. You're uh, there's a quite a scene happening there, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's Westerners and you know freaks, I guess, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of freaks. So you were there for how long? Eight months, nine months, mm-hmm. and um, made um, made my living, my entire living, with the jewelry that I was making. Mm-hmm. At that point, did you have any plans to leave, or you were I just open ended to stay? Yeah, none. So what happened to uh, kind of spur this, essentially the end of this 10 years there? Well, <clears throat> that was the time I, that I got sick. Yeah. And um, I got sick because after Scylla and I met, we um, went to, uh, down at, we took a trip together down into India and we got, uh, we stayed for a week on a houseboat in, in Varanasi. And it was right during the time when the flood waters were receding. And um, it was, uh, I think I got something there. Mm-hmm. We would actually swim in that, ri- mm-hmm. <laughs> in that river. Mm-hmm. And um, so getting sick, somehow I scribbled a note to my parents and mailed it. I said, I'm sick. It was like scrawled. Send money. Because this was after, I wasn't going to do that, but it was after I decided, okay, I could die. And Scylla encouraged me to do that. She said, you should really, you know, get back to America. And so, but then after this miraculous cure, I forgot all about that. I just sent that note. And then I get a letter uh, from my mom saying, we're, you know, we're frantic. Where are you? And, oh, my God, I forgot, you know. She said, there's money waiting for you in the bank. And um, so this is back to the parallel thing. How, during these years, how many times had, had, or how often had you actually even been in touch with them? You send a letter. There was, that was the second time that I'd asked for money and, um, in all those years. And the other time I asked for $200 to get me out of Afghanistan because um, I, w- I needed a visa Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I was going to get thrown in jail if I didn't get right. get it. And so dad sent me 200 bucks. Yeah. And then they sent me 1200 bucks. So in all that, in 10 years, that was the amount of... So there you were, you were recovered, but then you had some money in Kathmandu and you also had this woman from Australia that you were yeah. very tied to. Yeah. Yeah. Not, uh, yes, I was tied. I don't, she wasn't tied. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. And uh, <clears throat> so she had to go back to Australia. And then I thought, um, after she left, I put her on the plane and I thought, you know, I've got this money. I should just go back home. Mm-hmm. And I did. It just you, you had the feeling that it was time. I just had the feeling it was time. So, uh-huh. yeah. So you talk a little bit uh, at the end of the book about going back much later, more recently, to some of these mm-hmm. places, to India and Nepal. And so, you know, this was a time, the, the intervening period there of vast development, population growth, the electronic age, you know, communication. So, yeah. I can tell you that, I mean, just from myself, traveling mostly in the 80s even, I've been reluctant to go back to some of these places and ruin my memories. Yeah. Um, because of what I've heard, what friends who have gone to, say, the Kathmandu Valley and said it's polluted and there's crime and all these, you know, and overdeveloped yeah. And, yeah. and noisy and all that. So what has your experience been returning to? to exactly that. You know, it's painful on, on that level. And, of course, some of these places we're talking about, I mean, we're in this great, it seems like the upheaval now is... I mean, somebody said, some old politician said recently, there's more, you know, strife going on around the world right now than any time he can remember. And so yeah. you're looking in the Middle East and all that. You couldn't go to a lot of these places. But in India, you, I mean, does it, is it disheartening to you? I mean, to well, go back? In and, a sense, yeah, because, uh, you know, travel is very difficult. <laughs> the roads are gridlocked. Everybody now, because of the economic boom that's happened in India after the dot-com and the techie, you know, moved all the tech... IT to <clears throat> Bangalore, and it's created an enormous economic boom in that country. So, the very, very, very strong middle class. The entire um, tourism industry is set up now for the Indian travelers, not, not us. Huh. And um, so, as things, things are more expensive, and it's still doable, but... Um, um, there's that, and then when I was there in the 70s, one of the things that I loved about India was that there was not a single thing that was not used, it was not recyclable. And um, everything, right down from the cow plops to the, the newspapers, everything was used for something. Now there's plastic. There's plastic, I mean, they're just manic about plastic. They use it everywhere. Big plastic sheets they sell for people to uh, spread out on the, on the um, railway floors and so forth like that. And then they just get thrown away. And the, the, the country is trashed, absolutely trashed. Everybody throws the bottles of water over their shoulder and out the windows. And that's, uh, everybody buys a bottle of water every day. That's a billion and a quarter bottles every day. And most people buy more than one bottle. So that happens all the time. I mean, it's like, it's really out of hand. And um, so, you know, but I have x-ray vision. I see the heart of India. And I found it on my first trip. I was led to who has become my, my dearest guru that I've ever had in my life. And she's ironically a German woman. And she... Um, she went there when, in 1970, and she never left. 
she sat out on an island with the, the, the person that she declared to be her guru for 10 years in the, in the raw, in the open. And she was absolutely um, dedicated to the death of getting her enlightenment. And she did. And uh, then it, it's a fantastic story. And an ashram came of that. <clears throat> and and you're fam- still in touch with her? And well, she passed away very mysteriously about six months ago. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I still haven't quite assimilated that yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I went back again. I went back again the second time and stayed in the ashram with them for uh, four months at the beginning of <clears throat> 2013. Mm-hmm. So at the end, you actually you're talking about when you're uh, coming back and you reflect on. Uh, everything you experienced, and you say, I revisited many wondrous impressions of the vast world I'd traversed. I also reflected that my journey could have been tragic, it could have been fraught with mishap and misery. Doors might have remained closed to me, leaving me to go from land to land, to sit on the sidelines and watch the world go by from the shadows. I could have been robbed from my horse in Afghanistan, legs eaten by sharks in Costa Rica, or sent to jail in Pakistan. But my gratitude soared higher than the clouds below, and I understood full well I'd been spared those hells. Instead, I was carried and graced. I was granted the fulfillment of my singular desire to not only see the world and its people, but to become a small part of it too. So that's, this is your personal story. And so I wanted to, you know, in the, the time we have left, I want to talk a little bit or in, uh, with you about, I mean, this time that, that this happened was probably was a pretty singular time in our, in, in our history. You know, the 60s, as it's called. I mean, you started, you were really traveling mostly in the 70s, but your whole awareness of wanting to do that and things that happened was from the 60s. And there's a lot of, you know, they've been examined to death by people. What did it all mean and why did it happen? Yeah. And you can go mechanistic. I mean, a good friend of mine who's a famous thinker on this stuff says that it was all, I mean, it's a scientific point of view. You had the baby boom, people born when you were, who were all coming of age mm-hmm. right at that time, early 60s. You had a, the booming economy that you talked about and things were cheap. I mean, in the hate then, in the early 60s, you could rent a large Victorian for $100 a month and put 10 people in there and it was 10 bucks a month, you know? And then, so people had all this free time to do art and music and political activism and spirituality and drugs and all that. You had the pill come online, so you had a sexual revolution. You had LSD come online, you had the drug revolution. So he thinks that it's just this confluence that just happened to happen and then lasted for 10 years or so into the 70s and then all the other things that have happened since then. Then there's astrological theories, there's the Hindu theory about the Kali Yuga, the age, you know, there was the age of Aquarius you can talk about. So all this stuff happened and it's still reverberating through our culture, but there's been huge backlashes as well and huge failures of it, of, you know, uh, all of these things that were just mentioned have all had back backlashes to them, whether it's sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, do you see a broader story and meaning in why this happened and, and what has happened since then beyond your own personal story in the book? Big question, I know, but... <laughs> well... You know you've thought about it. The, the mystery to me is, is um, exactly that, and I've always tried to put it into words. <clears throat> even in my own mind but um, I think that at its core it had something to do with India now this is not just my personal viewpoint India was huge at the time if you, if you recall 
Um, and, and it went far beyond what we heard about and read about in the, in the news medias. It went far beyond the Beatles and all that stuff. It, what, we, what we realized about India was that India taught and the central, um, <clears throat> the central structure of their religion was exactly the enlightenment that we sought the enlightenment that we experienced with LSD. And this country starts from that experience and, and bring it step by step, makes it step by step so how you can achieve that cosmic consciousness. Lays it out. I have it written down here on one page if you'd like to hear it. Yeah. You wrote it down, we should hear it. It's called Cosmic Consciousness, the, the, perfect, the Perfect Psychology. I really see it as such, because any small part of it will improve the psychologi psychological well-being. It begins with our acid vision. The universe is incomprehensibly intelligent alive, awake, and conscious. That usually only took one good acid trip to see that. <clears throat> there is no death of the soul, only that of the body. The soul carries into the next life a mix of its ingrained qualities of enlightenment, such as generosity, and its ingrained karmic darkness, such as deceitfulness. These are just examples he's not pulled out, you know. If you're, if you're a, a specially generous soul, then you'll be born the next life with uh, generosity in, in, in you. And if you're deceitful and so forth. <clears throat> a perfect peace may be achieved by eliminating entirely the poisons of the mind. A less than perfect peace, but a general happiness, is what most people strive for and achieve. So, our only problems are hatred, fear, greed, anxiety, doubt, jealousy, narcissism, clinging, anger, sloth, desire, deceit, harmfulness, ignorance, gluttony, pride, avarice, lust, resentment, revenge, guile, dishonesty, chicanery, treachery, and the coveting of thy neighbor's ass. That's the Tenth Commandment in the Bible, in those words. <laughs> so, don't do that. To us hippies, we all together referred to all of these obstacles as hang-ups or ego trips. So the heart of the work is in all that block of mind obstructions. And to any degree that we can lessen, and to the greatest degree, that's what the sadhus are all about. They completely, they completely renounce all worldly achievement to the death to root out all the causes of all that. You know, that's what, that's what that whole enlightenment thing is about, you know. And there are millions of people who make that 
um, take those vows and live the entire life that uh, not involved in any of the things that we're very commonly involved with. So the major things that drew us to India was um, our discovery of their similar cosmology to ours and, uh, and two, that they smoke a lot of ganja. <laughs> so the great historian, world historian, Will Durant, uh, when asked, and he and his wife, Will and Ariel Durant, they wrote the biggest sweeping 12-volume, I believe, uh, study of, of world history. And when they asked him, what, is, what do you think is the most uh, significant development of the coming century, and this was 50 years ago, he said, it's the teachings of the East coming to the West. Mm -hmm. But, but I, I still think, you know, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I mean, you had, and you had, you know, one of, this is back when you were still in India, and you said, we Indians, not myself, but many, want to go to America and be like Americans. Now you're coming here wanting to be like Indians, going to our holy places and living poorly. Why are you doing that? I, my, what did I say? <laughs> there was a thought, it says there was a thoughtful pause. <laughs> okay, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> no, and then you talked about, and Jim talked about, you know, the, the you know, reading autobiography of a yogi, and et cetera, et cetera, yeah, and the yeah. teachings. But, you know, my impression, um, unfortunately, is that our culture and much of the world, including India, becomes more and more materialistic, actually, over time now. Yeah. Um, that seems to be the trend, and that it's leading, in my mind, to a, you know, an ecological... Uh, you know, nightmare that's yeah, coming Yeah, absolutely. Down. No, and, I, I and agree. A spiritual one. So, I agree. You know, I know that this is played out for you and for many people, but do you think that those teachings are really in, still infiltrating our culture and people? Sure, I do, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, uh, Indian people need to, need to learn some worldliness, you know, and, and we need to learn some spirituality, and uh, we can take it as far to any great degree that we, that we want. But... Um, the core of India and the teachings are still there. And no matter what's going on all around with the materialism, that core is there and it's strong. And I know that because I was there last year at the Kumbh Mela, which is the largest spiritual gathering on the planet. There was mm -hmm. 70 million people that passed through the, the Kumbh Mela in, uh, in a month's time. Mm -hmm. And I spent a month there. So, um, yeah, it's... It's powerful, uh, powerfully alive. And um, does it play out? So the, the legacy that I, I, the hopeful legacy of the 60s for me are the, some of the movements that came out of the consciousness, mm -hmm. you know, you call it out of the hippie thing. But I mean, this is where the real flowering of the ecological movement, which mm -hmm. is, you know, crucial to survival now, I think. You had the civil rights movement coming about. It wasn't necessarily a hippie thing, but it was mm -hmm. certainly supported uh, by that. You had the feminist movement, which was a big part of that time. All these things, which all became, unfortunately, maybe separate movements, where they could have maybe all coalesced into something that really would have transformed the culture more strongly. But... Um, these are still battles that are going on, you know, and, and, you know, we see backlashes all the time in all of those and, and continual struggle. And uh, I just wonder, you know, so this message and the kind of, you know, the things you experienced, my real concern on this now is younger people, how do you, how do you instill a sense of hope, not just hope, but commitment too, to, to continue those uh, struggles as the generation that, 
lived through the 60s, moves on, dies off, etc. Uh-huh. Um, I see, and by my travels in the last two times in the last th three years, there is a tremendous number of young people out on the searching. And, and yoga, the industry, the multi-billion dollar industry of yoga is, is uh, helping that along. I mean, even though it's to, you know, most of the people are in it to get a great looking butt. But it's, um, it, it also, it synthesizes a number of them to go out and search for the source and what's real. And so I'm seeing a, a beautiful flowering with the youth, myself. Mm -hmm. Natural flowering. Mm -hmm. Even if they can't afford to go off for 10 years anymore and travel like that, like you did. Yeah, well, if I would have waited till I could afford it, I would have never done it. Exactly. Right. right. <laughs> would have never happened. Right. <laughs> yeah. So what are people who, are, you know, what are the main impressions that people have told you when they've read your book that they, that they you know, have learned from it? Or Well, I, I don't get that sort of thing. I just get that they loved it. And so that's mm -hmm. good enough for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I don't know exactly why, but um, I'm getting a lot of uh, great response. Yeah. from people who read the book. And we should say that you brought copies here for people who are interested. Yes, I do. Absolutely. Yeah, as well. I have. So we can, in fact, if you wish, we can actually have some discussion here if you want. People want to ask questions yeah. of you. Um, we'd be happy to spur some more. So I know what yes. they're then... um, Oh, <laughs> well, I was just going to respond to what you just said about what did the book mean. Um, and to me, it, it taught me uh, courage. Because I thought you had tremendous courage to just walk out there into the void and, and trusting that, yeah. you know, the world would take care of you. And you had your eyes open, to be sure, but, but still, I didn't have that kind of courage when I was going through these searches myself um, in Berkeley, and I stayed home. And, <laughs> and, um, you stayed in school. Stayed in school, <laughs> yeah. And, um, but... Um, I mean, I thought that was just an extraordinary thing to do, and, and, and you gained an insight into the world that um, I don't have the opportunity to do anymore, because it's, I mean, that world is gone. Yeah. Plus, I'm too old. <laughs> Courage to walk into the void. Yeah. Well, uh, I think, uh, that's, thank you, and I, I look back on it now, and I think, yeah, it was, but... And when I was in India this last time, I thought, what would I do now if I didn't have any money? And I was like, <laughs> you know, it's <Yeah>. like, <laughs> mm -hmm. well, I see, think, the, yeah. just one, yeah. courage, because I didn't have the fear to begin with, I think if you access your own genius somehow, you know, you go to the source of what you're doing, um, there's not a fear involved. It looks like there should be from outside, but there's not from the inside. I think if I would have had fear, then I, uh, and then I would have been courageous. But I didn't have any fear, so there was nothing to overcome. So it was just like what I was doing, you know? <laughs> what I wanted to do. And, um, yeah. Seemed normal at the time. <laughs> Seemed normal at the time. Nanda, did you always know you were going to write about this experience? Or did no. you? No. And what changed, and what computer. caused you to take that long mm -hmm. time? Oh. That computer. <laughs> That's when I started writing. So you didn't take a diary with you? No, you I, writing no. I wrote letters, aerograms back in there. So. Yeah, this is what I was saying. This is what you know is amazing to me, the detail in the book from so long ago that you remember. 
That's what that, that comes from stopping the drugs earlier, right? I guess or something. Well, I didn't stop the drugs altogether. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> All I can say is I was there. You know, right. <laughs> I have to kill that old joke. You know, about <laughs> if you can remember it, you weren't there. Well, it's. It <laughs> yeah. Question. So, what would you say to someone who's the age now that you were then? Who was wanting to... I would say, please, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, what, go, uh, go out and... Um, why would you say that? Why would I say that? Well, because I would want them, I would, just what my dad said to me, you have to have, you have to know exactly why you want to do it before you do something like that. You have to have really a basis for understanding of what you're about to do, which I did. I, I, I had that because in those four, three years that I was in Topanga, I was, I was tied to the Marine Corps and I was tied to my job at the factory. This was a good thing for me because everybody else was going wild crazy. I had to be, you know, I had to steer the ship. And in those years, I had enough time to cogitate the whole thing and figure it out. And by the time 1970 came around, they were all burned out and I was ready to go. But I laid a lot of mental groundwork for that and envisioned the idea of going out there and running out of money and all that, you know. There was one back here. Is there a question? I have a question. Somebody? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was very interested to know when you were living with the family, the nomads in the desert, uh -huh. what kind of food did you eat? Oh, yeah. Couscous and white radishes was, um, that was the staple. And then we had dates. Dates, yeah. And we had bread. And we had mint tea, spearmint tea. Lots and lots of sugar. Sugar. <laughs> and um, the couscous was... No greens. The couscous was white as the driven snow. The vegetables were white. And the strength that those people derived from that diet was phenomenal. Dates, radishes. Yeah. No Some kind cheese. of milk. Or no. No milk. No cheese. No nothing like that. They had goats, but they only they didn't use. Never ate one of those goats. They just sold them. And they didn't make cheese out of the goats. No. No. The goats didn't produce enough milk. So there was a lot of energy that came from that food. Well, lots of energy. Yeah. Okay. I just. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What? I remember I, I lived on an island off the east coast of Spain called Formentera back in the mm -hmm. 80s, and I heard a lot of stories of the Germans basically like caravanning over to India the whole way, and I, I heard more amazing stories about Afghanistan than yeah. India. You know, yeah, yeah, it's we'll true. We'll never be able to travel through Afghanistan now. And yeah. I'm curious if your book details more, has more detail about Afghanistan as well. I don't know if I'm a good chronicler of, of the of place, but uh, I just tell my story, and of course we're in that place. So yeah. it is a significant yeah. part of the book, though. I mean, the, the, your experiences in Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So you you don't come full circle to how you got here, though, and what how you, you uh -huh. got drawn to. Well, Scylla, the woman that I met uh, at the end of uh, Kathmandu, and you know, toward that end. Um, she went back to Australia. I came back to America, drove a cab, and um, lived in Kansas with my sister in Topeka. The, and Scylla 
I have to back up and tell this a little bit. She um, um, wasn't sure about me when she left, but it, the letters got warmer and warmer, and then finally she just said, I, I want to come and see you, and then we got married uh, almost immediately in the first month. <clears throat> and then we built out a little Volkswagen bus and just set out across country to California, not knowing where we were going for sure, but uh, heading this way, and I was dropping in on old friends all along the way, and the last one on the list was in Bolinas. And that's Joaquin. That's the guy that I uh, spent. My, he's got ten chapters in the first part of this book. Joaquin does, and Joaquin uh, was the founder of the uh, Bolinas Community Garden downtown at the time, 1980. It's almost exactly 34 years from the time we drove into Bolinas. And you ended up having a family here. And we had a family and two boys and <clears throat> beautiful life. The adventure continues. I guess it could be 40 years on the hippie trail, you know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, honestly, yeah. It trails up on the mesa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any comment about the comparative safety of the trip for a woman back then and for a man? Because it seems like there would be a lot more. It's going through patriarchies and... Seems well, like it would be more pitfalls for a woman. You mean nowadays or, no. or those, those days? Safer for... I met several women who were traveling alone and doing it, you know, I mean, they're... Tony Steiner, you remember her? Lived over in, the, over in Stinson Beach? I met her when she was so vivacious. I mean, she's absolutely vivacious and she was traveling all by herself. She even lived with a Moroccan guy with her family as, her, as his lover. And so there's dangers, and Scylla. Scylla traveled all the way up from, um, on her own from, through Burma and uh, <clears throat> Indonesia, Burma, and all, of, all the way up to Kathmandu, the back way. And, and Scylla's book. <laughs> she, she doesn't, uh, she didn't have any trouble. She, you know? Yeah. That's a good question. Where's Scylla's book? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm sorry if I missed this, but what was in your mind that you were actually seeking when you left? Well, uh, I guess I was very naive when I was young, and I just wanted knowledge. I wanted worldly, spiritual, carnal knowledge. You know? That's it. An adventure. Adventure. You say you formulated a plan somehow in those times when you were in Topanga, or formulated. This is what you formulated. Yeah, it was a very simple plan. Right? You know, just to go, just to just to do it, you know, and then take it as it comes. Yeah. Other question? Yeah, Harry. Okay. My question. I, I, after hearing this wonderful adventure and reading the book and knowing you so well as a teacher. People in the room don't know that you taught at the Bolina School oh. at the jewelry shop, and I'm just wondering how you do this adventure, and then you uh -huh. settled down to be such a wonderful teacher. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Taught the jewelry shop and the wood shop. Yeah. yeah. These are and these are skills that I learned on the road. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I learned crafts and I learned uh, things. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something inherent in you in this traveling, and then you have many people here who know you, that it's, it's your, your spirit, you know, your, your positive vibration, in a lack of, in, for another term. And so you say in here, buoyant spirits are the only thing that separates a journeyer from the derelict. 
<laughs> the spirit from the ghost, and nowhere in my philosophies do I allow for being a derelict or a ghost. <laughs> so I'm just really glad that you did this, that you got the computer, and you wrote this and shared your journey with us here. So, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Ananda Brady and Steve Heilig. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Facebook. 